John 3, verse 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Hey, Jason, also, could I get one as well? Yeah, I didn't bring my Bible today. I don't know what I'm going to teach from. Just kidding. This makes it easier for the first read. Okay. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 1. The infamous John 3. Starting at verse 1. It says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we see, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, And does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they may have been done in God. Let's pray. Father, we often fail to understand the unrelenting grace and mercy that you pour out upon your children. Lord, I thank you that despite our grumbling and ingratitude and failure to appreciate what you have sovereignly accomplished for us, you you, you continue to love us. You continue to sustain and provide and bless us. Lord, I thank you that we can gather together, united by your spirit, united by your blood, and be taught by the teaching of your word and by the illumination of your spirit. God, I ask that as I preach this sermon that you would enable me to do this passage justice by your grace. Lord, I pray that this message would fall upon the hearts and minds of the listeners and that your spirit would cultivate it and and produce growth and maturity. Lord, I also ask that we wouldn't just agree with this message and do nothing, but we would agree with this message and be motivated to pursue those who have fallen away, those who have rejected you, just like you have entered into the world to pursue us. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And the reason why I mentioned that this passage is infamous is because apparently 
many theologians and commentators and pastors um, deemed this as one of the most complicated passages to teach from in the entire Bible. It is a very difficult passage to deal with adequately because there is so much meat, per se, uh, packed into it. And so, with the amount of time that I've allotted of me, I'm going to try to make this concise. (laughs) Forgive me if I don't. Let's begin at verse 1. John 3, 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, Nicodemus was a man of authority, great authority, in the religious leadership of Israel. And he was a, a member of the Sanhedrin. And not all Pharisees were were part of uh, this ruling body of Israel. Only a select few. Only the smartest, the wisest, you know, the most prestigious men were selected in this, uh, essentially a modern day equivalent of senators of the United States of America. He was also a skilled theologian. At least he should have been. We'll see here in this passage that... uh, He doesn't know as much as he really should. Um, But besides that, I mean, Pharisees who were theologically conservative, they held to a literal interpretation of the scriptures, uh, opposed to the Sadducees who were the other uh, sect involved in the Sanhedrin who were uh, theologically liberal and disbelieved in the uh, physical resurrection and afterlife. Um, but Pharisees, by the age of 12, uh, if they you know, completed their rabbinical training, uh, had memorized a large part of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, actually, the first five books of the New Testament, the, or the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, uh, they had memorized word for word. And so that's a remarkable uh, accomplishment. I mean, that's, that takes some dedication because most of us can hardly get through our one-year reading. We usually stop at Leviticus. Or numbers, and we just give up. Uh, But these guys, I mean, they were intense. They persevered, and they they memorized, word for word, a very large portion of the Old Testament. And so they were very, very, very skilled theologians. And John 3, 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs, that you do unless God is with him. The first thing I'll note in in, in verse 2a uh, is that Nicodemus came to him by night, concealed by the darkness. Uh, John doesn't really specify why Nicodemus came at night. It's possible that he may have been busy during the day. Uh, But uh, most commentators, most theologians, most pastors like to believe that he came during the night in order to prevent any sort of humiliation that would have come from uh, the other group of Pharisees who did not appreciate Jesus. And so what you must understand is that this elite force of highly intellectual, highly skilled theologians, uh, the Pharisees, um, there was a large group of them who thought, you know, Jesus, Jesus is a good teacher. And we know this because he also performs signs, miracles that are unexplainable. And so he must be sent by God. But then there were other members of the Pharisee sect that hated Jesus. They absolutely despised him. And so Nicodemus, it's very likely, came to Jesus in the night in order for him to prevent any sort of ridicule or persecution that would have come from his other elite members of his sect. And what he says to Jesus is rather interesting. He says, you know, we understand that you come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And Jesus is, rather, Nicodemus isn't talking about himself specifically. He's also talking about other members of the sect of Pharisees who also agree, you know, Jesus is a skilled teacher. And it's quite a bit of speculation, but I would infer from this passage that Nicodemus has approached him in order to invite him to be a part of their elite team. They've recognized that he's a very skilled teacher. He knows the Bible through and through. They also recognize that he performs unexplainable miracles. And so I believe that Nicodemus came to Jesus inquiring of him uh, if he would like to join their elite force of 
Pharisees, their team, their club. Yo, Jesus, you want to come and join our club? We think very highly of you. But you see, they missed his identity. You know, they agreed that he was a remarkable teacher, but they didn't see him as the Messiah. And so uh, they were still blind to his identity. They still didn't see him as the Son of God. They, they didn't see him as the Messiah that they had been highly anticipating. They didn't yet see him as uh, the one that the Old Testament anticipates and predicts and, and foreshadows. And so it's kind of ironic that this Pharisee who, who knows Scripture very well is standing right before the Son of God, face to face. He has no idea. And so he's asking the Son of God to be a part of his team. <laughs> and what's hilarious is Jesus' response to this compliment. He doesn't even address it. He doesn't even say, thank you, Nicodemus. I'm glad that you think very highly of me. He gets right to the heart of the matter. You see, he looks through all of Nicodemus' external holiness and you know, his highly educated resume and all of that stuff. He looks right through it and sees into his heart. And he sees that his heart is made of stone. Made of stone. You see, Nicodemus is likely under the impression that he's at peace with God because he's very religious and moral. He's not a Gentile. He's from the lineage of Abraham. He's memorized a large part of the Old Testament. He's very obedient to the law of God. And so therefore, he believes that him and God have it together, that their relationship is reconciled and that he will experience eternity. But Jesus looks through all of that external stuff and, and sees into his heart. And, and he says, yo, you need to be born again. I mean, think about this. It's like, yo, Jesus, we, we really, really love your teaching. We are really amazed at your miracles. You need to be born again. What? <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what, are you, what are you even talking about? In John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, well, that, that word most assuredly, that little phrase right there, he's saying, yo, listen up really closely because what I'm about to tell you is unvarnished truth. Don't miss this point. Don't miss this point. Don't miss this point. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, what in the world are you talking about? What kind of heretical teaching is this? You mean to tell me that if, that if I'm not somehow uh, reintroduced into my mother's womb, <laughs> that, I, that I can't enter into the kingdom of God? You mean to tell me that, I'm, uh, that what I've done is not sufficient for my, for my salvation? And that's sort of how he responds. In John 3, 4, he said, uh, Nicodemus responds to him by saying, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus isn't stupid. Okay, he isn't pulling out some papers and he's drawing this diagram. Like, okay, how does this, how does this physically like, play out? Like, I really want to understand. Okay, this is baffling. No, that's not what he's saying here. He's being crass. He's making a joke. Because he thinks Jesus, at this point, is now a lunatic. He's like, yo, I retract what I just said. You are not a good teacher. You're a crazy man. And then Jesus answers and says, yo, listen up once again. Listen up once again. I wasn't lying to you. What I'm about to tell you is unvarnished truth. Once again, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is news to Nicodemus. He's shocked. He doesn't get it. And you'll see in this passage as we continue on that, that Jesus is giving one analogy, explanation after another and, and Nicodemus is trying to flesh this thing out, trying to understand it because it's news to him. He doesn't, he doesn't get it. Jesus tells him that there are two essential things that need to take place in order for us to enter into the kingdom of God. Two essential things. We must first be born of water, and then secondly, we must be born of spirit. So there are two aspects to being born again. Two aspects. Two aspects. Being born of water and being born of spirit. 
what in the world was Jesus talking about when he's referring to being born of water? You know, actually, it's subject to much debate and controversy. Uh, I honestly don't have time to go through them all, but a couple of the popular ones are baptism and natural birth. There are a lot of people, a lot of teachers, a lot of commentators that purport that this passage is referring to uh, that water is symbolizing, representing uh, baptism, immersion by water. If that were the case, then that means that we cannot truly be saved unless we are immersed in water. Unless we can participate in the sacrament of baptism. Secondly, people think that it refers to natural birth. That this water is referring to natural birth. (laughs) I don't need to go any further. (laughs) I went into some further detail with the high schoolers and I just thought, man, that was really, really not called for. So I'm just going to leave it at that. (sighs) So what in the world does it represent? What in the world does it represent? It represents a cleansing of our old nature. It represents a cleansing of our old nature. You see, John 3 is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 36, 24 through 25. The passage reads this. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. You see, this passage is referring to God's people being regathered after an exile. It's a promise pointing to that point where the exiles of, of Israel will be brought back together. But there's something else that's way bigger than that, that it's promising. There, there are way larger implications of this text. It's also a promise that God will cleanse and transform his people. And so the first aspect that I'm talking about in reference to new birth is the cleansing. The second one, born of the spirit, that I'll talk about is the transforming uh, power of the spirit on our lives. You see, in order for us to be reconciled to God, in order for us to be reconciled to God, we must have our sins removed and forgiven. Our sin separates us from our relationship with God. And so if something needs to occur in order for our sins to be removed and consequently forgiven. And so what Jesus is referring to is the cleansing of our old sinful nature. And this is what I have to explain to you. You see, when we're born again, when we're regenerated, we get a new nature. But the old nature remains. It's still present. When we receive a new nature, our old nature is not demolished and destroyed. You see, I, Aaron, am still Aaron as a believer. My old nature is still present. I still sin. I am still carnal in thinking at times. I am still capable of falling short of the glory of God. I cannot rightly obey God's expectations. I cannot do it. So my old nature remains. In order for me to enter into the presence of God, I must have that old nature forgiven. I must have those sins, past, present, and future, removed. And so the first aspect of this new birth is cleansing. The water is representative of a cleansing that occurs when the Spirit unites us to Christ through faith And it's all made possible through what Jesus did on the cross. We're going to explain that as we continue on. The second aspect of our new life is regeneration. The second aspect of our new birth is regeneration. And regeneration theologically is referred to as the act of the Spirit of God where he imparts new life to us by connecting us, by uniting us with Christ through our faith. 
I know that's a bit of a lengthy definition, but it is the secret act of the Holy Spirit where he imparts new life to us through faith. Understand that the key is faith. This occurs through faith. And this act, the Holy Spirit, is like a surgeon. You see, he comes in and, and, and he is essentially performing heart surgery on us. He comes in like a surgeon and removes that old heart, that heart of stone, and brings in a heart of flesh. I'll explain what that means in a second. You see, when he removes this old heart and places in a new heart, it begins to beat for the things of God. It begins to desire the things of God. It begins to delight in the commandments of God. You see, when we're regenerated, we are given a a, a new life, a new set of desires, a new set of values, a new way of thinking, a new relationship to our sin. We, We begin to hate our sin. We begin to despise our sin. We don't want anything to do with it. And we begin to crave and desire Jesus above all things. That's what regeneration produces. And so what you must understand in this relationship between cleansing and regeneration is it's not enough to just be forgiven. You have to actually desire God. If you're not regenerated and you're just forgiven, you go, okay, so what? I still hate God. I'm still hardened towards the things of God. I don't see the beauty of Christ. I don't, I don't want anything to do with what God desires and what God does and what God says about me. I don't, I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to participate in church or anything. So what good is forgiveness unless we're regenerated? And so the two go hand in hand. That's why they're essential. And both of these things are received through faith. You see, before our regeneration, we were hardened towards the things of God. We had a heart of stone. I'm going to read you this passage in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28. It is the tail end portion of the new covenant, the prophesied new covenant. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This passage has huge implications, has so much to teach us. And you see, this heart of flesh that he's referring to, I'm going to take out this heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Think about it. A heart of flesh is, is like a... It's soft. It's like a soft lump of clay. It can now beat for the things of God. It can now desire to pursue Jesus above all things. You see, prior to our regeneration, we were spiritually dead. We were unresponsive to the things of God. It didn't phase us. We looked at Christ and simply turned the other cheek. We, we, we didn't desire him. We didn't want him. We were unresponsive. We were dead. No pulse. But when the Spirit comes in and performs that heart surgery, he puts in a new heart. And what occurs is we begin to respond to the things of God. We're softened towards the things of God. And you see the Spirit enters us and begins to shape and mold us. And so what regeneration produces is a new mind, a new heart, and a new character. We begin to think a different way, have new desires, new longings, things that are pleasing to God. And now we actually want to pursue morality, not for our sake, not for our reputation, but for God's sake, out of gratitude for what he's done for us. Because most of us pursue morality because we're fearful of judgment. Most of the good things we do are motivated by sinful intentions. But when we're regenerated, we can actually do good for God's sake. No worry, no doubt, no insecurity that we're going to be rejected 
but with confidence that our Father loves and accepts us despite our lack of merit, we can start obeying Him. When God makes a command, we, we, we heed that command. We love that command. We, underst- we understand that it is good and it is true, that it is profitable. This is what regeneration causes. And these are two aspects that occur when the Spirit connects us to Jesus through faith. Please understand this. This does not occur through religiosity. This does not occur through ritual observance. This does not occur through obeying a strict set of rules. This does not occur through uh, heritage, being related to a Christian, being a descendant of Abraham. And that's what Jesus is going to go on to tell Nicodemus. Listen, you got all the bells and whistles externally, but yo, you still got a hardened heart. You're still wickedly, desperately sinful. And you need to be changed and transformed. And what he goes on to say is, is admittedly a, a bit confusing. John 3, 6 through 8 says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. What Jesus is saying is, yo, you're not born regenerated. That which is born of flesh, yo, that is flesh. You are born in your sin. By nature, you are a child of wrath. You are subject to God's wrath while you're in your mother's womb. Adam's guilt has been imputed to us. We are guilty. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. He was our representative and our federal head. Not only are we sinful by nature, but also by choice. We choose to sin and we love sin. And if regeneration does not occur, then we will remain dead. And so what Jesus is saying is, just because, Nicodemus, you are a descendant of Abraham, you are not saved. You are not born again, Because you come from Abraham's line. You're born a sinner. You're born into a war with God. You immediately declare war. And then Jesus says, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Can you see wind? Can you see wind? Not at all. Can you see the effects of wind? You can see the trees move. In a larger city, you can see the building sway. In a hurricane, you can see things literally be torn apart by the power of the wind. Same goes for regeneration new birth. You can't see this operation. It's not physical. It's supernatural. It's a secret work, not seen by the eyes. But guess what? We can see the results of it. We can see the fruits of it. We can see the effects of new birth, right? We can see by the way someone is living that they have been truly born again based on what they value, how they think, what they participate in, their love for the church, their love for people, their love for God, those are signs that an individual has been truly born again. And then Nicodemus answers him and says, you know what, I am, I'm lost. <laughs> I have no idea how any of this could be. And so what we must understand here is that Jesus is about to explain to him how new birth how a cleansing, how a transformation is made possible. How in the world did God make these things happen? What process needed to take place in order for sinful human beings to be cleansed and transformed? We didn't do anything. We didn't deserve anything. 
That's what he's going to go on to tell him. You see, he says, Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? What he's saying, yo, you've been in the scriptures since you were a boy and you don't understand what I'm telling you. You don't see the fulfillment, the, the prophecies in Ezekiel and the fulfillment in what I'm explaining to you right now. You weren't anticipating this, this new birth. Most assuredly, I say to you, you'll listen up. This is unvarnished truth. We speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Who the heck is we? It's just Jesus and Nicodemus. Who is he referring to? All of a sudden, he switches the first person plural in reference to the Trinity. It can be read as this. Most surely, I say to you, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit speak what the Father, Son, and the Spirit know and testify what the Father, the Son, and Spirit have seen and you do not receive the Father and the Son and the Spirit's witness. You're rejecting the triune God. You're rejecting the God of your fathers. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. That's some crazy wordplay, Jesus. What does it mean? Jesus is saying, yo, I have answers because I'm God. I have answers because I hung out with the Father for eternity. That's why I can explain these mysteries to you. So listen closely, Nicodemus. Listen closely. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Listen closely. Don't miss this point, Nicodemus. Don't miss this. If you miss this, just resign from your current line of work. <laughs> just resign, okay? Just give up, all right? No, he's, he's a little bit more gracious than that. You see, Jesus answers his question. Yo, how can these things be, Jesus? Jesus answers this question by referring to an event that occurred to ancient Israel in the wilderness. He uses this event because Nicodemus would have likely known this event very well. He would have been familiar with it. And so Jesus is trying to help him along. Come on, baby steps, baby steps. You know, like, what about Bob? Just baby steps, baby steps. Sorry, you're like, I don't even never seen that movie. Go watch it, it's hilarious. Bill Murray. This particular event is found in Numbers 21. Numbers 21, four through six. Then they journeyed from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Oh, we're so tired. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and blah, blah, blah. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. You see, God delivered them from bondage. God delivered them out of slavery from Egypt. He supplies with their, their physical needs by supernaturally bringing manna down from heaven. Explain that. We're hungry? Boom. There's food. I'm supplying to you exactly what you need in order to live. And I'm bringing you to the land that I promised you. But as they continued on their journey, the people became extremely impatient and they started grumbling and complaining and, and, and demonstrating ingratitude. This isn't enough. I'm tired of manna. I'm tired of walking. I'm tired of sand. I'm tired of it all. So much so that they would rather re-enter into Egypt and be subject to slavery once again. We do this time and time and time again. We sin, we fall short, 
we embrace Jesus, we cling to the cross, we ask for forgiveness, we're cleansed, and then some time goes by and we're going, well, you know what, that old life seems a little bit pleasing once again. And we forget how unbelievably enslaving and destructive and condemning and shameful and riddled with guilt it was. How foolish is it to return to slavery? God frees us and then we turn to Satan only to be shackled again. And that's what Israel's doing. And so God responds to the rebellion by sending a plague on the people. He demonstrates his wrath towards his rebellious people. And what he does is he sends these poisonous snakes in there whose venom is described to being like fire. Uh, That, okay. I've been burnt like on my, my pinky. It hurts. This is a pretty brutal scene. I mean, this tells us how serious sin is. God, God deals seriously with sin. He's not a liberal about it. Ah, just let it slide. Let it slide. No. But he has a purpose in his judgment. And his purpose is to bring about repentance. And he does so by providing a remedy, a cure. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Here's four things. Four observations. Four things that we've got to notice. Number one, the serpent on the pole is for those who have been poisoned. And they cannot save themselves. There is no cure within themselves. There is no rescuing apart from divine intervention. They were hopelessly dying. They were poisoned. They had a cancer, so to speak. They were plagued. And the only way for them to be saved is if God intervened. Number two. God sending the serpents was in response to the rebellion and sin. It was his wrath poured out on sinful human beings. Number three, God's means, the means that he chose to save his people from his own curse is a picture of the curse itself. Put a serpent on the pole. Put the curse on the pole. So that when the people look at it, they will be saved. That's a picture of the curse. And those who repented, they, they, they looked at the bronze serpent and they were, they were saved, they were cured. But guess what? There were people who still turned their back against God. They still turned their back towards the grace and mercy and love of God. They, they decided that they would do it their own way. And subsequently, they bled out and they died. They just died. They were in agony. They were in pain. And they they decided to turn their backs against uh, what God had provided. Here's what we need to understand. Jesus is making a comparison to himself. Why in the world would Jesus use this vent? Why, why, why would he, what is he trying to tell Nicodemus? You see, Jesus is referring to himself. You see, Jesus used this particular reference as an analogy to describe what he had to do in order for us to be born again. What did he have to accomplish? You see, Jesus understood because he is God that the entire Old Testament points to himself. 
From Genesis to Malachi, the entire New Test, excuse me, Old Testament is predicting, is anticipating, and foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. The entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. It's not a bunch of moralistic stories about how we are supposed to be like David, how we are supposed to be like Moses, how we're not supposed to be like Adam, how we're not supposed to be like rebellious Jonah. No, that's moralism. That's not what the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, is about. It's about Jesus who comes to save sinners who are hopeless unless someone comes to rescue them. And so the Messiah that Nicodemus anticipates and expects is standing before his eyes and Jesus is saying, this event is pointing to me. It was pointing to me and my coming and what I'm about to accomplish in order for you to be born again. Why would Jesus refer to himself as the serpent? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Guess what? He became the embodiment of, of the curse. He became the embodiment of our sin. All of our sin, past, present, and future, was piled, heaped upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. He became sin who knew no sin. So therefore, the pole represents the cross and the serpent represents Jesus who became sin even though he was sinless in order for his people to be cleansed and in order for his people to be transformed. As he hung there on the cross, he was the source of our healing, just as the serpent hanging on the pole was. In order for us to be forgiven and granted new life. And then John 3.15 says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All they had to do was simply look at the serpent hanging on the pole and they would be saved. There was no religious work. There was no set of rules that they had to obey. There was no set of rituals. They didn't need to be baptized first. They didn't need to say 1,500 Hail Marys. There was nothing. They didn't need to be confirmed. They simply needed to believe and trust in the remedy that God supplied. You see, we are absolutely no different than the Israelites. We're, we're, we're all dying. We're all poisoned by sin. You see, in order to understand the next verse that I'm about to, to declare, the next truth that's about to be heralded to you is only properly understood unless we understand who we are prior to knowing Christ. We need to understand that we are sinners. We must understand that concept, that truth, that reality first in order for us to truly understand the following verse. In order to have gratitude towards what God is about to accomplish. You see, some of you may think that you're not as bad as another person that you know. That your sin isn't as severe. So you compare yourself to someone at work, to a friend, to a family member. I'm not as bad as this individual. You see, now you have made yourself the standard. Now you have made so-and-so the standard. You're not the standard. That person's not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And his standard, his expectation is perfection. And the Bible is explicitly clear, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We've all committed idolatry. We've all exchanged the truth of God to pursue false gods. You see, we've all sat at one point on our hearts, ruling ourselves, making our own decisions, making our own rules, pursuing our own desires as our own God. All of us have lied. All of us have harbored bitterness and anger and hatred 
in our hearts. Maybe not all of us have acted out on those things, but all of those things are in us. Amen? Therefore, the conclusion is we are lost and hopeless, just like those Israelites. Without God supplying a remedy, we are absolutely hopeless. You see, every single religious founder, except for Jesus, came into the world to teach, to be an example, not to rescue. You see, many unbelievers wrongly assume that to be a Christian means that we must follow Jesus' prescribed teachings and follow his example, and therefore, we are deemed saved, Christians. But the Bible says it's impossible because Jesus requires perfection. And so we cannot properly, we cannot adequately obey what Christ has taught. It's impossible. So Jesus didn't just come and tell us that we need to be born again and leave. He didn't just say, hey, you guys, Nicodemus, you need to be born again later. Peace out, bro. I hope it works out for you. You see, when you see a woman drowning, you don't throw her a manual on how to swim. You throw her a rope. Jesus is the rope. And in order to be saved, we must cling to that rope. Or else we're going to sink We're going to drown in our sin. And so Jesus isn't as much as a teacher as he is a rescuer. There is absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves from our sin. There's no set of, uh, uh, of, of rules. There's no amount of praying. There's no amount of studying. There's no amount of knowledge. There's no amount of dress or diet or anything like that that could possibly save us from ourselves. Neither is there any experience out in the world, in the secular world, waiting for us to, be, to grasp And experience it. There's no amount of drug, there's no amount of sexual experience or success or anything like that that can possibly save us from our sin. There's nothing religious, there's nothing secular. Only Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that doesn't mean anything to you unless you first understand that you're a sinner. The second part of the gospel is that God planned our rescue. God the Father, he sent the Son. He planned our rescue out of sheer grace, love, mercy, compassion, by sending Jesus into the world on a rescue mission. You see, we didn't earn this rescue. We didn't even participate in this rescue. It wasn't our idea, nor did we add to God's idea. Hey, God, you know what? This would be great too if you did this. You know, in fact, we didn't even know that we needed to be rescued. We had no idea. God just came and did it. He has an unwavering, unrelenting, and unconditional love for us despite our lack of merit. So that's, what God did. He, he planned our rescue. And, and, and number three in understanding the gospel is what Jesus actually came to do. He died the death we should have all died. He paid the penalty of our sin, past, present, and future. Theologically, this is called penal substitutionary atonement. I understand that that's a mouthful, so let me break it down. Penal substitutionary atonement. First, first, penal. This means that Christ paid the penalty of our sins. You see, Paul, in Romans 6.23, says the wages of sin is death. It is both physical death, cessation of life, and spiritual death, separation from God. Those are the wages of sin. Those are the wages of our sin. And so when Jesus entered into the world, lived a life that we couldn't have lived, meeting all of God's righteous expectations, he went to the cross and died, paying the penalty, paying off our debt. Secondly, substitution. Jesus died in our place as a substitute. He endured the full force of God's wrath that each and every one of us in this room should have endured. Every single one of us should have been hanging there on that cross. All of us. But he endured what we should have endured. And lastly, thirdly, atonement.
He died in order for our sins to be removed and consequently forgiven. You see, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest brought a goat, two goats, one where they confessed the sins of the people on the goat and then slaughtered it over the altar and let the blood pour out. It's a bit of a graphic scene, but it's all pointing to Jesus. The second goat, they also confessed the sins of the people on, and then they set it free. It's called the scapegoat. That's atonement. It's symbolic of the sins of the people being removed. And that goat runs away, taking the sins of the people with it. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You see, he became sin. Our sin was piled up on him. And then he was slaughtered in order for our sins to be removed, in order for us to be cleansed. You see, here's the awesome part. You see, we can't just end the gospel at that, at that part. We can't just end the gospel that Jesus died on the cross. We can't, or else we've missed the gospel. We must end at the resurrection. You see, if Jesus didn't rise again, then everything Jesus said was a lie. Jesus promised his disciples time and time again that on the, on the third day he would rise up again. So if he didn't do that, man, that's not good. It's not good for us. You see, when God the Father raised Christ from the dead, he was demonstrating that he approved of Christ's sinless life, his fulfillment of the law of God, and also his substitutionary death on the cross. He was demonstrating that he approved of Christ's work. But that's not it. When he raised Christ from the dead, he was also demonstrating that he approved of those who were in union with Christ, us. Jesus' resurrection is what accomplished our justification and our regeneration. It's the spirit that raised God that enters us and raises us. And the benefits of this redemptive work is only received by faith. Only received by faith. Not of works, not of knowledge, not of, inher- of heritage. John three seventeen says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, God incarnate didn't come wielding a sword and a hammer judging and condemning and throwing in people into hell like he ought have. He, he could have totally, justly, righteously done that. But he didn't. He didn't know the first time he came as a medic, not a warrior. He came as a medic to heal his people who could not save themselves. We're all laying out on the battlefield suffering, dying, helpless. We need a medic. And Jesus is the only remedy. He's the only cure, amen? And he didn't come to condemn us. He came to pay off our debt, to be our substitute sacrifice in order for our sins to be removed and for our lives to be changed. Here's some rather comforting news. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let's focus on 13, uh, excuse me, 318a. He who believes in him is not condemned. You see, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation, no eternal consequences that would result in eternal separation from God for those who are in union with Christ. Understood? I, I honestly don't think we understand. I don't. I mean, theoretically we do, but practically I don't, I don't think we quite do. You see, every time we sin and we convince ourselves that we now need to work ourselves back into right standing with God, we've now lost this truth. Every time we sin and fall short, we 
naturally are inclined by the default mode of our human heart is to regain our acceptance. That's how we work. We work, we get, we, we, we receive something. We don't work, the benefits are removed, right? That's how it works in the world. You do good on a test, you get an A. You do bad on a test, you get an F. You betray me, see you later. You're faithful to me, we're, we're, we're still cool. We achieve acceptance in the world by doing good. And we are rejected when we do bad. But see, that's not the gospel. The gospel is God loves, calls, accepts, and saves despite our lack of merit. And Jesus died for the full penalty of our sins. I mean, there is nothing else that needs to be accomplished. Nothing at all. He hung on the cross and said, it is finished. You see, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul talks about these Judaizers who came in teaching a Jesus plus something salvation. That Jesus is good and dandy, but there is something else that we must do in order to truly be saved. We need to be baptized. We need to have this theological structure. We need to attend this fellowship. We need to listen to these pastors. We need to read these books. We need to obey these set of rules that we've made for ourselves. We need to make our preferences equal to God's law, elevate ourselves above other people, and then that's when we're saved. But that's, that's all trash. There is no need for another payment because Christ was the full payment of sin. Penal substitutionary atonement. He paid for the complete penalty of our sin. Therefore, God does not require a second payment. And so when we sin and feel as if we need to now earn our way back to God, we're distorting the gospel message as if our relationship with God is conditional on our obedience. And that's simply not how it works. We don't aid, contribute to our salvation. We're hopeless within ourselves. So when we feel as if we need to do uh, more good and be more obedient, we are distorting the truth. We must constantly remind ourselves that Jesus did all the work in our place in order for us to be completely and totally free from condemnation. Amen? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, I cannot say that on behalf of those who do not know Christ. We'll end here. John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen. They have been done in God. It's foolish that the people in the wilderness so many years ago refused to look at God's provision God's remedy, that they turned his back to his grace. And it's devastating that people continue to do so. The remedy is Jesus. The remedy is Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, from my experience in counseling students, I've come to understand that the reason why people continuously reject Jesus is because they, 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 des- they, they desire and long for their sin. They love their sin. They don't want to give it up. You know, one person in particular just this last week told me that They simply don't want to follow Jesus because they want to continue doing what they're doing. They want to stay in the darkness. And what ends up happening is 
those who do not believe somehow convince themselves that God is not real in order to provide an excuse for their sin. I've talked to the most vehement atheists who have come to Christ who have declared that even as a hardened atheist that they knew deep in the recesses of their heart that God was real. But they did all that they can to disprove the existence of God in order to alleviate the guilt of their sin. And so they pridefully do not want to submit to a God who is much bigger and better than them. And they are so riddled with guilt and shame that they now try to completely block out this idea that a God who is righteous even exists. And it saddens my heart that there will be people who will go on disbelieving till the end. I'm going to close with this. And that is when the gospel is preached, people's lives are transformed. Cities are transformed. Churches are transformed. That's why we preach the gospel time and time and time again. That's why Christian life should be a constant, a constant realignment with the gospel. Because we are constantly straying from it. And so I'm so blessed by this passage because it's bringing us back to the unvarnished truth of the gospel. That God loves the world despite our obedience, our disobedience. Despite our lack of merit. Despite our rebellion. That he chooses to accept and embrace and save and call us even though we've spit at him even though we've committed deicide, even though we all contributed to the death of his son, it brings me much comfort. And you see, our response should be worship. You see, good theology produces good doxology. And where Christ is appreciated... That's where worship occurs. And you see, don't restrain worship to this last portion of songs. This is what I'm going to implore you guys to do. It is our obligation as Christians. It's not the basis of our salvation, but through our renewed hearts should come gratitude to serve God. And part of that service is heralding the truth of the gospel to those who do not yet know him. And so we must not simply agree that the gospel has the power to transform lives. We must also agree that we're going to go herald this message to those who are lost. Because if it does have the power to transform lives, then why in the world are we silent? Jesus is remarkably good, amen? Let's close in prayer and in song. Father God, I thank you that you've rescued us. I thank you that there is no end to your grace and your mercy and your love and your compassion, your faithfulness. It is unwavering, it is unmoved, it is not conditional. It is freely given because you are a good and gracious God. You don't love us because we are good. You love us because you are good. It was because of your good pleasure that you came and saved us. It was because of your pleasure that you came and restored our lives and provided a remedy for our sin. Lord Jesus, would you help us? Help us to simply long for the things that you long for. 
Help us to obediently respond by proclaiming this truth to our friends and our family who do not yet know you. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you, thank you for letting us be a part of, of, of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that through our lives we would, we would only but further it. By your grace and by your power. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. 